You can be opening up your Bibles to uh, the letter to Colossae, the Colossian letter, chapter 4. We'll be taking our text from there today. And uh, I hope you enjoyed our, our refined Sunday, which we had late last week. We had a little break from our class time, but uh, I think it was a good, good uh, service. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was, you were uplifted. I hope you were refined. You were uh, encouraged. Uh, we, we thank our ministers for taking care of that, putting that on. It's something they've had on their hearts to do, and uh, we just appreciate them for that and, and their willingness to help us and, and, to, and to feed us spiritually, right? To, to refine our, our need for, for the spiritual things of, of God, and uh, we think that was great. If you've been with us in class, of course, you, we've been talking about the Colossian letter, uh, talking about how in the first two chapters, Apostle Paul exhorts those of Colossae, the brethren of Colossae, to live the kind of life that demonstrates their faith in Jesus Christ as their all-sufficient and preeminent Savior, right? Especially at the beginning where Paul talks about how he's heard about their great love, their great faith, their steadfastness in the faith. Not, and, and we glean from that that Paul probably was not one of the primary per, uh, people that had helped establish that congregation, and perhaps it was Epaphras and some others who he had heard about the brethren at Colossae and their love and their great faith. And how they were, they were willing to serve, they were willing to help each other out, and willing to be examples to others. And he, we read later in chapter 3 about Paul describing the basics of Christian living, reminding them, even though he, he praised their faith, he's reminding them how they need to live daily as Christians. And then later on in chapter 3, we talked about the apparel that they are to, apparel, the apparel of, the, of, the, of Christian life, not, not what they wear, but how they are to be clothed with Christ, right? How are they are to continue to be uh, growing in spirit, be, trying to be like Christ, carrying out their lives in Christ. And then in our last lesson, Paul discussed some guidelines for, for, uh, to govern our Christian uh, families, how husbands are to be to their wives, how wives are to be to their husbands, how children are to be treated by parents, and so forth. Some very good guidelines that if you follow, you will go far, right? doesn't mean you're going to have perfect lives. doesn't mean you're going to have everything work out just perfectly for you. But these are guidelines that Paul's giving them to seek out, to try to, try to carry out, to try to put into their lives in a way that's uplifting to those around them. Well, today we're going to read his closing statements from the letter, and then we'll have one more lesson in Colossians next week, and then we'll begin a study of Ephesians, which is going to be kind of parallel to Colossian letters. A lot of stuff in Ephesians that's going to be similar to what we read about in Colossians. But prior to making this closing statement, he now gives us three exhortations that we're going to read about today. Three exhortations to the brethren at Colossae, and of course, exhortations to us that we might say are essentials to living that Christ life, Christ-like life. Let's turn over to chapter 4 of Colossians, and let's read the text for today, beginning in verse 2. He says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. All right, so we have some exhortations from Paul here as he's about to close this letter. 
And he's telling the Colossians, as Christians, he's exhorting them to pray. At their, and, and he tells them some things about their prayer life that need to happen, right? First of all, he's saying their prayer has to be faithful, to continue earnestly in prayer. How many times have we read that in Scripture? Lots, right? We see that all over the place. Continue earnestly in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Do you think that God wants us to pray? Absolutely. It's said over and over and over. And it's not just pray when you feel like it. Or it's not just pray when times are bad. It's not just pray when you get some bad health news. It's pray unceasingly all the time. It's important. We don't know necessarily why, but we know we got to do it. Praying earnestly, steadfastly. Paul writes about that constant need to pray. Turn over to Romans. I want to read a passage from Romans chapter 12. It kind of refers to this. Romans 12, and let's begin in verse 9. <clears throat> Here's Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. He wrote the church in Rome to continue steadfastly in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he writes to those in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. The people faithful, were faithfully continuing prayer is a concern of our Lord as well. We can read about that in Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. We have Paul exhorting them to continue to pray Let's see what the Lord said about that in Luke chapter 18. There's a certain parable that he describes. I don't want to read that for you. Beginning in verse 1. Pay attention to how this, this plays out. I want you to really follow along because I think you can relate to it a little bit. Probably some of you more than others. Verse 1. Then he spoke to a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. That's an interesting parable, isn't it? I think Kyle kind of had a lesson about this a few weeks ago, right? That, yeah, complaining is not necessarily a good thing, but sometimes you need to complain, right? To get something done. Yeah? That's kind of what he's saying right here about this widow, right? The, the judge who, who did not fear God, he didn't care about spiritual things, but he's got this woman who's constantly coming to him with a need and finally says, okay, i got to get her out of my hair. So I'm going to do something about it finally, right? He's saying that. How does that relate to prayer? Well, continue reading. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The analogy is that prayer, unceasing prayer, gets things done. Even a judge who doesn't fear God, doesn't fear man, wants to take care of the squeaky wheel, right? He wants to put some oil on that finally. He gets tired of it. He's tired of hearing about it. Not that God is 
tired of hearing our prayers. Well, that's what he's saying. If the unjust judge will do that, how much more is God going to take care of you when you come to him in prayer? Speedily. And notice that last little verse there. He says, will I find anybody who has faith on the earth, basically? Right? That's part of that prayer life, you see. Part of having faith is being in prayer. It goes together. It goes right there together, right? The Lord said it. We ought to do it. Or he might not find faith on the earth. We have several wonderful examples to serve as our role models. Turn over to Psalm. I want to read something David says. Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 55. Let's just look at what he says there. <clears throat> and so, and David, David has a lot to say about prayer and so forth, but let's see what he says here. Beginning in verse, um, let's go with verse 16. He says, as for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Evening, morning, and noon. When you think about it, that's pretty much all day, right? Pretty much. Doesn't mean we have to be on our knees 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? But we are constantly in prayer. Yes, we got to be on our knees, but we're kind of in a prayer example, a prayer, um, a prayer life constantly, right? We should be as Christians. That's something that should be foremost on our minds. Turn over to Daniel. I know you know the story of Daniel, but perhaps the most, the greatest example of prayer life to me is Daniel in Daniel 6. When Daniel knows that the law has been passed that anybody that prays to anybody you know, else but the king will be thrown in the lion's den. And what is it, what's it say in verse 10 of chapter 6 there? He says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, so everybody could see, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. You see, Daniel knew that he was going to pay for that, probably with his life, right? But he had great faith. He had a great faith that allowed him to go home, open his windows, let everybody see him pray, because God was number one. He didn't pray to the king. He prayed to God, who's number one. Here's an interesting, it's a little bit more, uh, well, it's, it's one of those examples that we don't necessarily think about when it comes to prayer, but turn to Luke 2. And this is an interesting one. Luke 2, and verse 36. Let's begin in uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 36. And this is uh, around the time of Jesus' birth, right? He's come back to Jerusalem. And now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age. Now notice, notice it says about her life, or what it says about her life. Pay attention to this, because we miss these things sometimes. She says, she was of a great age, and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. In other words, she was married for seven widow for 84, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. 
And coming that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. You see, she was fervent in her faith, fervent in prayer and fasting, night and day. Didn't leave the temple. She'd been a widow for 84 years. She had dedicated her life to prayer and fasting and the service of the Lord. We know Anna got to see the Christ child, right? And she was happy before she died. Interesting stuff, right? Great examples we have. Colossians 1, where we have Paul's example, and also Epaphras. We'll read about that next week in chapter verse 12 of chapter 4. These apostles were in prayer constantly. So many of us, as I said, pray, though, only when we have a crisis. We're too busy, right? We got to get up, get the kids fed, get them to school. We got to get to get to work. We got to get to school. We got to do this. We got to go get the presents. We got to wrap the presents. We got to get the Christmas tree up. We got to bake the fruit cake. Nah, I'm not doing that. Bake the cookies, maybe. We got stuff we got to do, right? We don't have time for this. Daniel did. Daniel had time to pray even though he's going to lose his life from it. Can you imagine facing a, lion, a den of lions because you prayed? Ugh, that's tough. I don't even want to think about it. Also, he talks about prayer that is watchful, or as Paul puts it in his text, be vigilant in it. It's not just about praying. It's being watchful knowing he's going to return, vigilant, watchful for things to happen. One several occasions, Jesus warned his disciples to be this way. <clears throat> Paul says it in Ephesians 6, be vigilant about it. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 4. Watchful praying that we will not be caught unaware. Unaware of what? Well, unaware of Satan, right? Unaware of temptation. I've heard it said about prayer that, if nothing else, it aligns our will with God's will, right? It puts us in, I don't know, in unison with God, together with him, trying to help us to understand what he wants for our lives. Sure, we have the word, we study the word, we serve him, but through our prayer life, we can talk to him and try to understand what he wants for us. And when we're watchful about it, when we're vigilant about it, things will happen. When low, when we're tempted, right? We're not caught unawares. When death comes, we'll know where we're headed, right? The judgment to follow. And as Christians, we'll, we'll, we'll know about that glory that we're about to receive when he comes again. All these things through prayer. Faithful, steadfast, unceasing prayer. Also, we have to have a prayer that's thankful. Paul says in, in Colossians 1 uh, and throughout the epistle to Colossians that there has to be an emphasis on gratitude. Someone said we should thank God just as diligently in our prayers as we make requests of him. But do we do that? Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Read something when he says there.
He says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds to Christ Jesus. You see, we make requests, of course, but it has to be with thanksgiving if you want that peace that passes all understanding. Thanksgiving, gratitude, humility, knowing that you are praying to the God that created the universe where you live. Turn over to Romans 1. Let's see what he says about that. Let's see what he says about those who might not have been so gracious. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God's shown it to them. He's talking about the Gentiles knowing there's a God simply from creation, nothing else. For since the creation of his world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But because futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Thankfulness, gratitude goes hand in hand with faithfulness. You cannot be faithful and not be thankful. Not possible. Hand in hand, together. In our prayer life, are we thankful to God? Are we gracious to God? I, in my prayer this morning, I knew this was coming, so I tried to make sure that I was saying we are thankful, and we are, right? I am. And I hope each and every one of you are. I know you have tough times sometimes. I know you're going through things health-wise, financially-wise, family problems. But we can always thank our God because in the end, what's going to happen? He's going to give you that crown of life, right? In the end, that's the way it's going to be. If you remain faithful and thankful and continue to pray the rest of your life. Prayer that is purposeful. Paul also talks about that. He says, prayers, you know, prayers are often general, right? We tend to pray, I know, but be, be, with, the, be with our government, which, which I, I did. Uh, be with our community, be with our families. But in our personal prayers, we need to be purposeful, specific, not general. Turn back over to Romans and turn to chapter 15. I'll read a passage from there. <clears throat> 15, and let's begin with verse, uh, verse 30. Paul says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul is requesting them to pray specifically for him, and he gives the reasons for it. He can be with them. 
continue to have their fellowship, encouragement, education. We need to be specific. That's why we have a prayer list, for example. We need to be specifically in prayer in those who are in need of prayer. Now, we're all in need of prayer, right? But there are examples that we have where there's a specific thing we need to be talking about at that specific time, especially those who are in need, particularly physical needs, right? We need to be specific in what we pray. From our text in Colossians and elsewhere, we can make specific requests for different things. For instance, in chapter 4, we just read there in verse 3, Paul talks about having opportunity to speak. That's something we need to be specific about. We should be specific about that in our lives and about those who serve here at the congregation, serve as missionaries, serve in the kingdom, giving them opportunities to speak about the love of God, the love that we understand and, uh, and appreciate so well. We need to have that opportunity. Also, in verse uh, 4 there, he talks about wisdom, right? Specific about wisdom. So we can know as we ought to speak, know how to speak, know what to say, having that ability to do that. And in Ephesians 6, let's turn over there. We'll read a passage from there. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse uh, 19. He says, And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Not only do we need to be praying for opportunity, praying for wisdom and what to say, but boldness, courage, desire to speak when opportunity arises. That might be the toughest part, right? Being bold enough to speak when you know you might get rejected. Being bold enough to speak when you might lose a friend. Over it. Maybe that's what we need to be praying about too, right? That boldness to know and the willingness to do it. So as we endeavor to live a life like Christ, and make the kind of prayer life that we need to have, there's four things right there that we need to remember. Have prayer that is faithful, have prayer that's watchful, prayer that is thankful and purposeful. Four good things to think about in your prayer life. And I want to encourage each and every one of you when you are praying to kind of remember these things. That can help you, guide you a little bit. <clears throat> when you're praying morning, noon, and night. Well, we also can look at some other things that Paul talks about here to the Colossians. In living a Christ-like life, uh, he talks about something about dealing with those who are not Christians, right? He says to walk in wisdom. Christians need to be concerned with how they walk. Why is that? How we conduct ourselves. We're to walk in wisdom, especially to those who are outside. That's how he puts it there. Especially to those around us who are not believers, who do not have faith. You see, it makes it hard to speak. It makes it hard to preach if you're not conducting yourself like Christ. I know you're, you're not perfect. You're not without sin. You're going to have sin. But as we are continuing to grow, continuing to be under prayer and service, 
our lives are becoming more like Christ and we should live and conduct ourselves like him more and more every day. First Peter, turn over there real quick. Just read a verse, a couple of verses from there. First Peter 3, just read what he says. Verse 1, Wives, likewise be submission to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. That's an exhortation to wives. We talked about this a little bit last week, or the week before, that by your conduct as a wife, if your husband is not a believer, he may become a believer because of the way you act. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden part, person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. From this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, being submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and not afraid with any terror not trying to harp on the ladies having to obey their husbands, right? But you are to conduct your lives like Christ, right? And that's how you win others. That's part of it. Another reason for such wisdom, or, or another reason that wisdom is, is imperative is because of time. He mentions that here. To be exact, a lack of time. Our lives are short, right? I know some of you older folks can look back at your lives. And I, me too. Seems like just the other day I was in high school worrying about the prom or worrying about finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend or worrying about making an A on my chemistry test. Yeah, I know all that stuff happens in high school. Seems like it was just an hour ago, right? Time is short. We don't need to waste it, right? We need to be diligent about our time. And there are many in the world who have less time than we do, right? Who don't have a relationship with the Father. Some people who need Christ, whose time left on earth is even shorter than ours. So we need to, as he says, redeem the time. You see, we are no longer ours. We are his. We are bought with a price, set apart for good works, He's given us time now to serve in the kingdom, right? Our lives now are dedicated to him. They should be. It's not just about us sitting around enjoying an abundant life in Christ. It's using that time for his purposes, and that's to preach, to teach others, be examples. It also was said of Jesus that people marveled at the way he spoke. In fact, let's look over in Luke chapter 4 and see what was said about him. Luke chapter 4, verse 20. This is after he has spoken. He says, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. <clears throat> in the eyes of all who... Did I say Luke 4? I did, didn't I? In the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled 
at the gracious, gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So they marveled at his gracious words. Here's Jesus telling them, you know this prophecy about the Messiah that I just read about? That's me. I'm here. And they marveled at his words, how he spoke, how gracious he was. Then they eventually wanted to kill him, right? But it was amazing how he would speak to them. You see, the power of the tongue is tough. I mean, it can be tough, right? What you say, how you speak. We're warned about that in many places, particularly, though, in the book of James. Look over there, and let's read some verses. James chapter 3. <clears throat> beginning in verse 1 he says my brethren let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble on many things if anyone does not stumble in word he is a perfect man able to also to bridle the whole body indeed we put bits in horses mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body look also at ships although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Man, I don't know, I don't think he could paint a more vivid picture, right? Our tongues can defile our whole body. Wow. We have to be careful. It can have great destructive power. And also, it's pretty hypocritical to, on one side, talk good, the other side, speak evil to one another. And it's interesting how he talks about how speaking like that to men who are made in the image of God. We've got to be careful about the tongue. We need to learn to speak with grace. As Paul commanded in Ephesians 4, no corrupt communication is to proceed out of our mouth. Our speech is to be seasoned with salt, not salty language, right? Especially need to watch the language we use around those who are not Christians. Now, I know you've all been around friends who say they're Christians, and then their language is pretty salty, right? And may, maybe they're not really who they say they are, 
Maybe you see things and other things in their lives. But there are those who tend to do that and try to live a Christian life. What James is saying here is that's not possible. If you're going to speak badly, you're going to defile your whole body. From the tongue comes death if you're not careful. It's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? It's a pretty powerful thing to say. If you don't tame your tongue, you might end up in hell. That's what he's saying, basically. It's a tough thing to say, but it's very true. Going on from there, he also talks about a servant of God, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Turn over to 2 Timothy. I want to read a passage on that. Second Timothy chapter 2. And let's see what he says, beginning in verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle law, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We have to be able to rebuke gently, kindly in love but we are not to be quarrelsome yes if we see a brother who's in need of being corrected that needs to happen but not causing strife not causing quarrels that's what he's saying here we are gentle kind loving and remembering those who we're speaking with are made in the image of God so we have three exhortations that Paul has here of those in Colossae our prayer life needs to be diligent, needs to be different, needs to be steadfast. Our walk needs to be in wisdom, conducting ourselves like Christ. And our speech needs to be a source of encouragement. You know, Barnabas was called the great encourager, right? I would imagine that's mostly because of what he had to say. Your tongue needs to be a tongue of encouragement, not of destruction. This is the essence of following Christ, to allow him to live in our lives, showing God's grace to all those around, to our brethren and to non-Christians alike. I hope you can glean something from that today. I hope you can help, this will help you to apply it into your lives and, uh, and help you grow. All right, time is up. Thanks for being here.